I was thinking we have to be one of the most discerning cultures of what is real and what is fake on the face of this planet. I mean, we have to be. Of what is genuine and what is forged. Now, I'm not saying that other cultures and other people can't discern the difference, but with all respect, they ain't L.A. L.A. is bloodhound-like with any and all fake. And not only that, we attract other bloodhounds from around the world to come and join us in our sniffing out. And I was thinking partly because that is, well, because we're the inventors of fake, or we're the inventors of the pretend world, or 99% of us identify as artists, or creators, or connoisseurs, or entrepreneurs. And in a world, and a region, and in a culture of like plastic and phony, like much of L.A., we starve for authenticity. We starve for it. We ask constant questions like, you know, what mountainside did my birth grow, you know, food birth upon? I don't know. Like what, uh, we hate preservatives. Or was my food cage-free or was it a poultry pioneer? Like we constantly want to know as much as we can, what is fake and what is original? What is fake and what is real? We cherish real leather. We cherish real products. We cherish real conversations. We cherish very much real effects and real stories and real emotions and, and real love. But what's fascinating is, does, does that apply to our faith? Does that apply to our faith? For us as Westsiders and Californians, do we want what is real in the area of faith, or do we want what is real to us in the area of faith? One of my favorite books on the challenge with Christianity in America speaks very close to home with this issue. The author said this, as a result, the Jesus of the New Testament, whose paradoxical mix of qualities and commandments presents a challenge to every ideology and faction, has been replaced in the hearts and minds of Americans with a more congenial figure. A choose-your-own Jesus. Who better fits their own preconceptions about what a Savior should and shouldn't be. A choose-your-own Jesus. Again, the difference between Do we want what is real in the area of faith or do we want what is real to us? What is real to our desires in the area of faith? When it comes to authentic Christianity, the Bible reveals a very sharp, 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 sharp disdain for fabrication. The Bible doesn't give a a rip about fake highlights or knockoff jeans or preservatives. But when it comes to faith and following Jesus... The Bible is wise about what is real. And I say all of this because tonight we're introduced to a very new character. And in the course of the book of Acts, if you think about it, we've met some very interesting people. But our acquaintance for tonight is one, you know, he's among the unforgettables. Look down at verse 9 of chapter 8. Verse 9 of chapter 8. But there was a man named Simon. So as we'll all soon see, Simon not only stands out within the Acts of the Apostles, but within the entire Bible as a whole. He's unique, and he's, he's bold, and he's daring. But I would also add that Simon is dangerous. Simon is dangerous. 
But what Simon's claim to fame, what he is best known for, is his inauthenticity. The very thing we can't stand, Los Angeles, is embodied in the life and work of Simon. And even that is putting it far too lightly for what history would tell us turns out for Simon to be. Now, what I hope we have come to see with our own eyes and hear with our own ears is that the book of Acts is the key to understanding Christian beginnings. It turns the lights on how the Christian community should operate and practice and love and do ministry. And as Acts oozes all that which is so right and good with the Christian community, it also equally reveals the origins of what can and does harm to the Christian community. Obviously, Luke, the author, can't record every prayer that's prayed or every item that was sold for one another or every convert's testimony or even the majority of what the other apostles were doing. So it would be fair to believe that what is recorded and what we have compiled today is what the Holy Spirit thought necessary for the church to know, for us to know. And guess what? Simon makes the cut. He's got a short amount of verses, and he makes the cut. Because tonight's verses are sobering. The life of Simon is very, very sobering. His story serving as almost like a thermometer for all of us here and now. His story, a ringing bell for the entire community of Jesus. Again, much like us, collective church. So because of that, what I thought would be fun is to do a little character study of sorts. A biography in the fabricated forged and fake life of Simon the Sorcerer. His life is easily one of the biggest cautionary tales within the book of Acts. But before we're there, before we even start talking about his life, how did, how did we even get to meet him? Where in the world did Simon come from? How were we introduced to Simon? Well, we know Simon because we know Philip. People remember Philip from last week? Philip the evangelist, Philip the missionary, Some of you may recall, Philip came on the scenes in Acts chapter 6. He was given a job, care for the widows and do some administrative duties. That was Philip's job. But as we saw last week, the community of Jesus was what? Remember, it was landlocked. The community of Jesus was growing in depth, but not in width. And the only thing that got this first church back on course was the murder and the imprisonment and the draggings from their own home type of persecution that was happening in Jerusalem. And so what happens is Philip leaves. Philip leaves Jerusalem. Philip left his administrative duties. But Philip doesn't leave passively. He leaves with purpose. Philip's exodus reminds, from Jerusalem reminds me of uh, P.D. James' book, The Children of Men. I don't know if anybody's read it. You've probably have seen the movie. Um, where in his novel, though, if you've never read it, I'll say it briefly, this man, through a series of tragic events, is essentially ordained to escort and cherish and protect and to see its delivery of the first pregnant woman the world has seen in decades. The future of mankind depending on this man escorting this pregnant woman to make sure her delivery is safe. See, much like Philip, Philip doesn't escape Philip doesn't quit. Philip doesn't seek out a safe haven. Philip sees the precious and urgent nature of the truth of Jesus Christ. And he must deliver it for the sake of the world. And the world includes the badlands. These badlands also known as Samaria. 
Now, the only way we'll see the gravity of Acts chapter 8 or the fearlessness or the boldness of Philip is that for us right now to have an accurate, accurate view of Samaria. It is pivotal that we have an accurate view of Samaria and the key to understanding the Bible or what was happening with these, with these missionary journeys. This is very important. So if you want to write this down, it could be helpful. I don't know. Samaria and Samaritans were the ethnic minor, uh, minority. Their heritage roots were all tangled up with people of other tribes. Their beliefs and their rituals were far from what Philip and the other apostles would have been used to. It's essentially this. Samaritans to the Jewish community were socially, they were religiously, and they were racially inferior. To socialize with them would be like to socialize with the diseased. They were considered to be the scum of the earth. They were all to be avoided. And what's beautiful is here, Philip knows that. And Philip walks in. Philip walks right in. And not only is Philip up against Samaria, but he soon finds out he's also facing sorcery. So he's up against already the stigmas of Samaria, and he walks in, and now he's hearing reports of sorcery. Look at verse 9 again in your Bibles. But there was a man named Simon. Remember, that's our case study for tonight. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So Simon is a sorcerer. He's a magician. He loves Dungeons and Dragons. Like, he's up there. He's Dumbledore style. But this man must have been quite the figure. Simon, Simon Magus or Simon the Magician, whatever he's known by in different circles, he must have been quite the figure. I was trying to imagine him with my mind's eye this week. I don't know about you, but does everybody else think, I hope so, does he remind you of Vegas superstar Chris Angel? Was anybody else thinking of Chris Angel? I kept thinking of Simon with like black eyeshadow, wearing a trucker hat and like bedazzled jeans. Like this is Simon, like walking around. Now for us to really soak it in, what Simon was doing, I want us to put on our thinking caps for a moment and imagine if this were in contemporary context. So let's imagine the West Side. Let's imagine if the West Side was swayed and wooed and influenced by one dramatic individual. Chris Angel. Let's pretend it's Chris Angel. And from palms to the promenade, all were speaking of this man. His name graffitied over billboards or burgers named after him or his TED Talks with millions of hits. All of his books selling like hotcakes. Everyone started to wear bedazzled jeans. Like whatever it was, the West Side was influenced. I mean, this was, this is the reputation of Simon. This is what it would have been like. Thus making sense of what we see in verse 10. Look at verse 10. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God. He's talking about Simon here. This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So friends, this is where the meat of fakeness of Simon's life has its start for us here tonight. This would be, you know, the, the very first fake thing we see would be his vocation. His entire job and work is an illusion. 
sleight of hand and trickery. I mean, that was his way of life. But please don't think that Simon was like sawing ladies in half and like vanish. Like that's not what the type of magic we're talking about here. The type of magic some would consider and speculate could be witchcraft. So it's Simon the witch or, you know, Simon who was part, could possibly be part of the occult. Or it would have been, and a lot speculate, that this could be the darkest sorcery the world would have known then. The sorcery, um, again, many speculate, could have been easily, heavily demonic. Very, very heavily satanic. See, nonetheless, whatever it was, he won the amazement of his people. He won the amazement of the Samaritans. But what is even more concerning than his magic was that he was heralding himself. He even gives himself a nickname. Did you guys notice that? And it wasn't like T-Bone or Ace. It was the divine, holy, godly title of great. Excuse me, Simon? No, no, great. Great? Like he wants to be called great. Now hear me. I believe this is a very, very strong word for us planted within Simon's life. He... He just loved and reveled in the fact that people thought he was a visible, living power of God. He wanted people to be amused at his work and presence. He wanted the conversations to completely just stop and people be in awe as he walked by. He wanted to be the life of the party. See, this being another thing I believe the West Side, or maybe so many of us, can be very, very familiar with. I will go as far to say that the longing for greatness is natural. I'm assuming, though, we all want to be great in our respective areas, right? We all want to be great in our respective areas. I I would love to be a, a great mom or a great musician. We desire for this to be a great church and a great community of people. I would love for this sermon to be great. We want to do a great report or write a great script or do great work. So essentially, you guys get where I'm getting at, but essentially, what's the issue then? What's the problem? Simon's just great at his job, apparently. What's the big deal? Let's move on. Well, the Bible certainly, and this is where I want to slow down, the Bible certainly teaches two truths at once when it comes to greatness. On one side of the blade, one side of the blade, I would say that this doesn't just happen on the streets of Samaria, but we see breadcrumbs leading us all the way back into the days of creation. Perhaps some of you who've read Genesis or know the stories where the serpents seduced Adam and Eve, and what did they say? What does he say to them? What does he say? He said, you will be like God. You will be like God. And that continues on to the ambition of the men and women at the Tower of Babel. What happens there? It says, let us go and make a name for ourselves. See, what's crazy is, is it's such simple, seemingly right ambition to be like God. To have a name for oneself, okay. But both of these same ambitions that are buried deep in the book of Genesis seem to be growing out of the life of Simon. Simon wants to be like God. Simon is trying very hard to have a name for himself. Now, I can't be the one to tell you or convict you of improper ambitions in the area of greatness. You must search your own heart and seek to discover is the pursuit of greatness for my impure gain or for his glory. And that, my friends, I was thinking is a very, very tight rope to walk. Jesus himself spoke about this. I want to talk about this for a moment. Jesus spoke about this very natural ambition for greatness. He said, 
Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, excuse me, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, this is Christ's cure for the deep longing of greatness. And like Jesus rightly and often does, he flips greatness on its head. See, if we want to be great from the advantage and from the perspective of heaven that comes from a place of servanthood. Basically, and I'll just come out and say to are you a servant? Think about how backwards the kingdom of God is, that Christ, who is the absolute greatest and deserving of all praise, and the true title of great, models a dramatically different way of greatness. Christ beckons us, Christ beckons me, Christ beckons you and all who follows to be entirely counter to the world's idea of greatness. Basically, don't be like Simon. And as Jesus followers, we are to never see greatness or service the same way again. I was thinking, I started writing a list. Yes, we'll never view, you know, plunging toilets the way, you know, the same way again. Greatness! Changing diapers and nursery, greatness. Loading the truck after church, greatness. Yes, yes, and yes. But greatness can even be found in the heart and the actions of a CEO of a billion-dollar company. See, greatness in our day means serving versus the expectation of being served. It means looking for the opportunity, the pursuit to serve, rather than the expectation of being served. Friends, know this. This is why we push so very, very, very hard here for you guys to recognize and be involved and have a heart of service and to serve here. And not to show up going with the expectation of I need to be served tonight. We love for this church to have, to be great. And we know that for this church to be great, that means God's to be on display, Christ to be on display by his people serving one another. See, I want us to see it's greatness redefined by Jesus' words and deeds. The efforts of greatness not abolished. Jesus says, no, don't have, don't, you don't want to be great. That's not what happens here. It's not abolished. The goal and efforts for greatness is now just redefined. Redefined. It's redefined to show us that it shines brightly when we pursue opportunities to serve one another. When one seeks another's comfort rather than their own comfortability. I tell you, I was just thinking so much these days about, you think about the church a lot, and you're just so thankful, and you think of the times that were so profound throughout this process. I mean, Isaac already brought it up. You're thinking about the days that we were praying, and we just getting started in core group gatherings. But I tell you, some of the most profound moments that modeled greatness were those little moments where somebody would walk up to Lorenzo and I, or they'd walk up to my wife and I, and they'd say, how can I serve? And we'd be talking to just people. You would just, like, they have these incredible roles on the West Side, or they're doing incredible things, and they go, I, I, don't, I don't care. What do I need to do? What can I do? How can I serve? Where can I serve today? What needs to be done? Let me do it. They were preaching a message over and over again to my family and I, to Lorenzo and I, that their Jesus, their servant King Jesus, the real Jesus, has moved them to complete servanthood and complete sacrifice. 
If that is Jesus' definition of greatness, I just want to be able to say here and now, just we're so grateful for our volunteers at this church. We love you guys. We love watching you serve so wholeheartedly as you model heavenly greatness. Anyway, rant. What I think is so awesome is how tangible and how near Jesus makes this greatness. Do you guys see that? See how tangible Jesus makes greatness? You want to be great? Climb Everest in an hour. Jesus doesn't give him some ridiculous task. Jesus says, serve. To be great, it is a choice to live counter, counter to the counterfeit greatness that this world is laying upon our shoulders. See, where for Simon, he ceaselessly is wanting to go up. Jesus would tell Simon, as Jesus would tell us, tell us that the only way that is to happen is if Simon goes down. Simon and we are to deny and we must lose and we must sacrifice and we must deny our own need for our own greatness for his greatness. This is where I believe people curious about the faith of Christianity get stuck in the tar of what is real and what is fake. See, authentic Christianity versus a counterfeit Christianity and a counterfeit being something people are much, much, much happier with. See, people are wanting more of a domesticated Christianity. I cannot tell you the amount of conversations that I've had with people in my time of ministry where all people want is a, is a very tame Jesus or a very subdued Bible or a convenient faith. I'd go far, as far to say that those words that Jesus says where he says, I came here to serve, as we just read, is exactly what our sinful nature would want, missing the point entirely of what Jesus meant as you know, king, servant. So many people wanting a Jesus, a faith system that serves our desires our lust, our wallets, our calling, our sexuality, our likes and our dislikes. And whatever is challenging, we just cut it out. Like we're somehow editor, you know, chief editor of the Bible. Whatever we don't agree with, command X. Whatever about Jesus is counter to our life, cut it out. Friends, I am here to tell you that type of Christianity is fake, and that type of Christianity is lethal. It's lethal. It's fool's gold. It's a knockoff. It's wax. It's a Jesus of our own invention. And a fake Jesus of our own invention cannot save you. A Jesus of your own invention cannot save you. I was thinking, a fake Jesus of our own design, this is such a stupid illustration, but I thought it worked. A Jesus of our own design is like a windbreaker in a snowstorm. Hang on, I'll get there. I was thinking about it because it has the, the appearance that everything is covered. No, I've got a jacket on, my arms are covered. But severely lacking in actually doing anything to help us, to protect us, to save us. You see, much like the illusions of Simon's life, he wants a disillusioned Jesus. Simon wants a disillusioned Jesus, a God created, created out, of, out, of, out of his own image, a Jesus that serves his purposes, a Jesus that served his fame. Does this Jesus sound like anybody's Jesus here today? 
see Simon missing the point entirely that only the real and authentic Jesus meets the most fundamental and radical need that we have. And that's the reconciliation with the living God to be whole with him in this relationship that we were created to have. See, we need to be more at peace with his greatness than the pursuit of ours. This is the real Jesus that Philip brought to Samaria. Look at this. Look at verse 12. This is the Jesus, the real Jesus that Philip brought. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. See, Philip is the antithesis to everything that is Simon. See, Simon says, I am great. And Philip's like, no, 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 Jesus is great. Simon says, I am powerful. Philip's like, no, 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 we are powerless. We need the Holy Spirit. Simon says, look at me. Philip says, don't you dare look at me. Simon says, I am real. Philip says, no, 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 this sorcerer is fake and dangerous. Simon says, believe on me. Philip says, believe today on Jesus. And in the crazy turn of events, this is exactly what happened, happens to Simon. Look at verse 13. And Simon, even Simon himself, believed. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. He's like hanging on his every move. Continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. It's beautiful to think that unlike Simon, Philip has zero swag, zero sway, zero reputation, zero burgers named after him or whatever. But Philip has the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Side note, this is the last time we see John in the book of Acts. That's a little sad. Verse 15, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, that they had laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So let's let's stop here for a moment. Is anybody confused by this? What's happening here? Philip preaches to Samaria People count the cost and choose to believe to follow Jesus, but they need then the apostles to come and lay hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit. See, we haven't seen this before. We haven't seen this. We here now Christians have the Holy Spirit, but I don't know about you. I don't think Pete Pete showed up and put his hand on my shoulder and said, receive the Holy Spirit. John didn't show up and do that for any of us. Maybe it is because Philip lacked in his message. Maybe Philip screwed it up somehow, and they're like, send up Peter. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that Peter had to re-preach or something like that. Why only did the Holy Spirit come when the apostles came? The simple answer is, this is Samaria. This is Samaria. Horrible, good-for-nothing, taboo, sinful, contaminated Samaria. And what was, essentially what was once off limits is now brought near by the good news of a very real, authentic Jesus. 
And Samaria is the first community other than Jerusalem that the gospel has spread to. Thus, and hear me, God delayed the gift of the Holy Spirit for this one-time instance. So that the apostles might see, so the apostles might see if the authorization and the authenticity of the truth of Jesus has truly advanced. This is obviously a huge topic, and we don't have all the time in the world to get into it. But what I've seen from my study and what seems right is that they delayed, that God delayed the coming of the Holy Spirit for proof to the apostles. You see, the entire set of these verses tonight is about authentication, where Simon needs it, and Peter and John go to witness it. Now hear me. This was, this, this way of receiving the Holy Spirit, hear me, hear me, is completely abnormal. It is not the normative. This is why we have titled our time in Acts, Archetypes. So that the people here now know truth that will apply to us today, and we see the truths that applied to the early church. This is important. See, this is a big, big deal, obviously, for Peter and John to show up. For them to go and decide to come and see. God wants them to see with their own eyes. God is wanting them to see this manifestation that is truly and most beautifully proclaiming that the Samaritans are no longer freaks, but family. He sends Peter and John, you guys need to see this. So the Holy Spirit, the gift of God, falling upon them, falling upon the Samaritans, must have some of the same visible experiences or expressions as Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Because Simon sees it. Peter and John shows up. Simon sees it. Simon wants it like a bat. Simon is freaking out at what he sees. There was a, um, there's a film that came out in the early 90s thinking about today, it's really quite a menacing, disturbing movie. It's about a young couple. They had, life was good. A recession hit. Financial hardship hit. So they go to Vegas as a last-ditch effort for some financial boost. And they blow their entire wad of cash that they had left. And this married couple then is approached by a man. And this man is like a multimillionaire. And this millionaire goes up to the couple and offers them $1 million for one night with his wife. He goes, I will give you $1 million for one night with your wife. And he makes this very indecent proposal, that being the title of the film. This movie has always, always bothered me. I always hate Woody Harrelson in this movie. What are you doing? Because it's so heartbreaking the heartbreaking nature of someone, of what they'll do for money and what someone will offer money for. See, Simon, fake, fake, fake Simon, makes a very indecent proposal. Look down at verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands... He offered them money. 
So when Simon saw this one-time, abnormal, not normative experience through the apostles, he offers them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone I may lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit as well. Give me this power. Just so you know, since then, it has been forever called simony. It's the word Simon with the Y at the end where one believes that they can buy clerical office or they can buy, you know, they can purchase spiritual power or they can purchase almost God. It's called simony. And for Simon, and get this, for Simon, numerous of historians and theologians believing Simon wasn't converted to Christ. So we just read, and Simon believed too. But like everything else he did, he faked his conversion, his conversion also. And this indecent proposal Simon made did not sit well at all with Peter. At all with Peter. You guys remember Peter's like hot-tempered nature? Look at verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven, may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. It's intense. Peter's almost violent rebuke has, has, has been famously said by J.B. Phillips, that Peter basically said this, to hell with you and your money. To hell with you and your money. See, one of Simon's gravest mistakes was to take from the gospel of Jesus, was to take from Jesus himself only what he wanted. Again, hopefully a powerfully exposing thought for every single one of us here. Friends, if you do not believe on Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul, or Christians, if you need to be reminded of this truth, know this. Jesus does not and will not be compartmentalized. Jesus will not be compartmentalized. Simon wanted the power of Jesus, but not the person of Jesus. It's like wanting the church but without Jesus, or it's wanting Jesus without the church. It's wanting his grace, but I don't want to be generous with the grace. It's wanting goodness, but I don't, I don't want to suffer. This is Simon's M.O. You keep your Jesus, but you give me the Holy Spirit. You keep your Jesus, but I will take that power. Jesus will not, the real, authentic Jesus, will not be compartmentalized. This is what author Sky Jethanian um, would call a life from God. He would call it a life from God, where you believe to get from God. He says this, So many seek a relationship with Jesus as utilitarian means to an end. And although we may praise him with our words, our hearts are set on what we hope to get from him. We become jerks, clothed 
and religiosity. So in the words of this author, Simon is a jerk, clothed in religiosity. I have to ask, I mean, is there, we're at this point, is there anybody who would rather live a fabricated life with a fabricated hope, with even possibly a fake salvation? Is there anyone who just wants God as this gumball machine? That our choice is, I would rather have that than the real, authentic Jesus. My urgent advice is that fake, that type of fake life shatters in the end. See, if our Jesus, if your Jesus is the type of Jesus that we have thrown ourselves on, and if that Jesus is not the Jesus that is so wonderfully and authoritatively revealed as he's revealed in the Bible, then let this be a warning to all. What Simon has just so heavily reminded all of us is this, that there will be fake Christians and there will be real Christians. Simon is showing us that there will be authentic Christians and there will be counterfeit Christians. This is a very, very sad truth. So much so that Jesus saw in his day and he was driven to the point where he asked the words, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do a single thing I say? Why do you call me Lord and not do a single thing I say? It's got to be one of the most difficult, one of the toughest questions that Jesus has ever asked. Jesus then, after that question, goes on and tells a story about two home builders, two carpenters. See, Jesus is like, no, one man, he laid the concrete. He dug deep. He built the strongest slab. He built upon the strongest slab of rock that he could find. He goes, there's another man, though, who built an identical home, cookie-cutter style, and has, like, the identical light fixtures and the same, you know, stone pavers out front. From the outside, it is identical. The only difference was the second man did not build upon a true, real foundation. And so when the river floods, Jesus' story continues, when the river floods came in, it swept the man's house away that was built upon fakeness. It was built upon a Jesus of their own making. It built upon the Jesus that Simon would believe. It was built upon nothing. So what that means is there will be in Christ's community, much like Simon, those that sing, those that eat communion, those that receive prayer, those that sit here and listen, those that get baptized, those that serve, those that do good things. What that means is on the day when they meet Jesus, Jesus will look at them and say, I do not know you. It's some of the most sobering words of our Lord Jesus the real authentic Jesus, to the people who go through all these religious emotions just like Simon. And they cry out, Lord! And they're going to get right there and Jesus is like, I don't know you. It is a terrifying truth. London pastor and preacher again, John Stott, said there's nothing more important for mature Christian discipleship than a fresh, clear, true vision of the authentic Jesus. If you could answer, what would you say would be the object of Simon's salvation? 
What was the object of Simon's faith? Was it the authentic Jesus? For me, I would say no. It was amazement. It was amazement. He sees all this, and what did the Bible say? He was amazed. It was amazement, and it was all... All the amazement was in the wrongfully placed hope and trust. See, he had all this hope and trust in himself that he himself was great, that he was his own savior, that he as Messiah, that he was divine. See, Simon at the end of this whole ordeal started to get the severity of what he had just done. And even in Peter's brutal words, they're still full of mercy. He tells him to repent, full of mercy to turn around. And Simon, clearly rocked by all of this, asks of Peter. Look at verse 24. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And verse 25, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Simon the sorcerer won't even pray. He won't relate to Jesus. He was more concerned for the repercussions than for the repair of his heart. He is still pushing away and rejecting the real, authentic Jesus. Is that you tonight? There is... There is so... It's just one of these thoughts that I don't believe that there's a simple equation or I have to say the right thing from the stage or if somebody just did or this, put this in the right spot or all the stars aligned. If that just happened, then I would believe on the real Jesus. A Jesus of our own fabrication or a Jesus less than anything that he has revealed in scripture cannot save you. And to believe that that is the Jesus that we will one day be reconciled to God with is very, 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 very false. There is healing and hope and truth and forgiveness and love only in the real Jesus. And here's the thing. Here's absolutely the thing. You may 100% have him entirely. You may have him entirely. And we may be a people, you may be a person. We're not living a life based upon a lie. But we may live our life based upon that strong, real rock that is Jesus Christ. My encouragement tonight would be if there's any Simon tendencies in any single one of us, that tonight that we would self-examine, go, no, I'm fake here. No, I'm very, very fake here. That we would allow tonight to be this this pushing, this inspiration, this sobering announcement to go, I need to believe on the real Jesus because he is worth it. I need to believe on the real Jesus for our hope of salvation. That is our prayer for this church tonight. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now in full need of your Holy Spirit just as we saw It changed lives just as we saw it powerful. We need your Holy Spirit to move in this place, to convict in this place, 
to tug in this place, to bring us to repentance in this place, in our hearts, in this moment, right now.